0: And welcome to the Hand in Hand Show where caregivers and survivors have honest discussions about stroke. We are a part of Stroke Focus Podcasts. This is Cam, your host. If you are a survivor, a caregiver, a researcher, a support group leader, or a local business helping the stroke and brain injury community, Stroke Focus is offering a number of exciting programs. Get details at the end of this podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Hand in Hand Show, a part of Stroke Focus. This is Cam, your host, and we're here today with Bill. Bill is a Generation X stroke survivor, and he woke up the morning of June third, 2017, with a blood clot in his basal ganglia, which robbed him of the use of his left arm and leg. With a lot of work and physical therapy, he has relearned how to walk, I'll bet with a nifty cane. His arm is getting better, and he is optimistic that one day he will get his finger usage back. Professionally, Bill is a corporate trainer and product evangelist, primarily focused on the technology industry. He has worked for some of the world's largest corporations, including Toshiba and Microsoft, and he has done media interviews at major trade shows for broadcasts around the world. He has appeared on QVC multiple times, and he's always looking for new opportunities to speak, write, teach, and travel. Bill is a podcaster who drove the creation of podcast-based training in the U.S. electronics retail. He is also a regular guest on the Caffeinated Comic Podcast, a Chicago-based show, covering comic book, geek, and pop culture content and issues. He also hosts the Two Minute Talk Tips podcast, where he helps folks become more effective public speakers in as little as two minutes a week. In February 2018, Bill launched the Stroke Cast podcast, where he explores rehab, recovery, the frontiers of neuroscience, and one-handed banana peeling. So I want to bring him on now because the uh, banana peeling thing really kind of gets to me and I want to know more about that. I want to know about everything. But anyway, welcome Bill.
1: Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Good. I, we're excited to have you. I always love meeting new people. Tell me a little bit maybe about your life before your stroke.
1: Sure. So before my stroke, I had been uh, previously working as a corporate trainer and product evangelist. So that meant I actually taught people how to sell computers and how to be excited about it and how to work with customers to really talk about things in a way that's going to meet their needs, to focus on what your customer is going to need rather than focusing on all the bullet points of specs and speeds and feeds and all of those technical details that ultimately don't matter. I had actually been looking for work one morning. Well, I had been looking for work for several months when my stroke happened, uh, meaning to me that probably the single best investment I have ever made in my life was opting to pay my COBRA insurance payments out of pocket because, well, not cheap. That certainly paid for itself once the stroke happened. I woke up at 7 in the morning, June 3rd, so we are rapidly approaching my first stroke anniversary here, and my arm felt a little funny. I figured I had kind of just sort of slept on it wrong, got up to use the bathroom, and my arm didn't get better. Pins and needles didn't show up, and it uh, I didn't start to get any feeling. And then my left leg started to fail. I started stumbling and having less control over the leg. I realized at that point that something was seriously wrong. I uh, looked in the mirror and, yep, there was the face droop starting to happen. Uh, I made it back to the be- to the bedroom, woke up my girlfriend and told her, I think I need an ambulance. I, I think I'm having a stroke. She called 911. Ambulance showed up. Uh, they did their assessment and were like, yep, you're probably right. and took me to the hospital less than two miles away and, I rolled straight from the ambulance bay into the CT scan. And then uh, I spent the next month in that hospital. Nothing showed up on the initial CT, but uh, a couple hours later they did an MRI, and that's where they saw my clot and my uh, basal ganglia. Things continued to get worse over the next several hours, and I kind of bottomed out by about three o'clock that afternoon. Unfortunately, because I woke up with my stroke symptoms and I had gone to bed at about one in the morning, my last known good was one in the morning, which by the time I was at the hospital, put me outside the window for TPA. And this was uh, also since it was last summer, the thrombectomy time was also much more limited. So they didn't really have the option of doing any of those interventions. So it was just let's take care of you, let's make sure this doesn't happen again, and let's get you back on the road to recovery as quickly and as efficiently as we can.
0: When you were in the hospital, I guess they did all the rehab, physical therapy, occupational therapy, maybe speech therapy.
1: They they sure did. I spent uh, a few days on the neuro, the acute neuro floor at the hospital, and then they moved me upstairs to their inpatient rehab space. They did the uh, speech uh, evals and the R-bands test, but I ended up not needing any of that. All of my, uh, my slurring was just due to losing physical control of the left side of my face. But it was really all about PT and OT for three hours a day every day for the next three and a half weeks uh, until I eventually left the hospital on July 1st it was a great team over at uh, Swedish Cherry Hill here in Seattle. I uh, really liked my therapists and they pushed me hard. They worked me as hard as I was willing to work. And you know, that's what it takes. You've got to be pushed hard and you've got to go ahead and do the work. I wasn't there for vacation. I was there because I wanted to walk again. I wanted to dress myself again in less than an hour and a half. And, I wanted to get better and learn more about this and do what I can when I got out.
0: I totally understand that. We don't sugarcoat it. It's not easy. None of this is easy when you're trying to get back. And uh, I do have to say, we tried me with a cane. I really wanted to be able to use a cane. Unfortunately, they told me I was dangerous. And I asked to myself or to others, and they said both. So, um, <laughs> Yeah, so I eventually had – I'm without a cane or anything now, and I'm okay, but I wanted a nifty cane. That's I didn't true. get it. They're so much fun. You can do so much decorating to them, or you can find some really cool ones out there. You know, the, the hard part is doing the therapies and sticking with it. When you were finished in the hospital in, the, in their rehab section, were you able to get outpatient therapy also?
1: I actually had a, before I did outpatient therapy, once I got home, uh, there's a, a program that operates in several states in the U.S. called Rehab Without Walls. And what they are is a transitional rehab service. Uh, that insurance actually paid for, it, which was great. But that meant that I ended up having, uh, PT and OT actually coming to my home four days a week for the next six weeks. And each of their stays was an hour and a half. So they were long sessions. So I continued to do rehab while I was uh, at home, obviously a lot less expensive than uh, in than inpatient. And it was a really great transition. And then after about six weeks of that, mm-hmm. then I went uh, back to the hospital for outpatient rehab. So, uh, and I mm-hmm. continued doing that until March when uh, my insurance eligibility ran out and, uh, I'm hoping to get back in there uh, fairly quickly because while I've come a long way, I can see that there is still progress that I need to make. And uh, I want to get all of the resources and, and help and assistance that I can to make that happen.
0: Absolutely. You know, that's one of the things people don't really understand is you don't make progress just your first three to six months. Or even to the year point, you can make progress, we have found, 20 years down the road if you keep working or, you know, if you've stopped and then you start to work again, you can still make progress. I'm six and a half years out and I still make progress. It's not seen every day or every week or sometimes even every month, but, you know, you still make progress so you don't ever want to stop this.
1: Absolutely. You know, once you're convinced you're no longer going to make any progress, then you're no longer going to make any progress. As long as you're continuing to focus on doing it, you've got that chance of recovery. I mean, the thing is, all of that information that my brain had about how to use those left limbs was wiped out that day. It was deleted. It was, it was like in the computer when the drivers for the printer get, get erased. That stuff was just gone and had to relearn it. And the last time I learned that stuff as an infant, you know what? It took me several years to become good at walking and to become effective at using my arms and my hands. We're not born knowing that. We have to learn it. And now uh, we have to learn it again.
0: Right. Exactly. And I love the way you just said that because a lot of people, People don't look back and say, oh yeah, I did have to learn to walk at one time. I, I was an infant. But it is true that we have to relearn this. And sometimes the brain doesn't give the, the body the signals. Sometimes it's something else, but we have to relearn it. And and it's a struggle and it's hard, but we keep going. It gets better.
1: Yeah, and, and that's one of the things that's been really Fascinating about this process and uh, and i've I've got this weird sense of curiosity, so I am oddly fascinated by the way all of this works together, but thinking about all of the different muscles that are involved in walking and yes, as I establish those new connections in my head, uh you know I'm bringing on different muscles in my legs, but it's only now thinking about the gait that you know when you take a step forward, you first pull your leg back by using those hamstrings and you know. And you don't even think about that normally. It's not just you put one foot in front of the other. It's like, okay, what does that mean? Well, it means you're bending your your ankle to lift your foot up. You're bending your hamstrings to start lifting your foot up and pull your leg back a little bit before you swing forward at the hip. Then try to land on your heel and roll through it. And it's this really complicated orchestra of things. And especially early on in the process, that orchestra isn't playing really well together. It's Everybody's playing on their own out of tune as they're trying to tune up. And so you've just got this cacophony of sound and not the beautiful music you'll eventually get with practice and with work.
0: Absolutely. So what do you think has been your biggest challenge?
1: You know, I think the uh, the biggest challenge has been, you know, trying to recognize – the things that I can't do, and trying to make sure I go ahead and get that done and and, and realize there are some things that it's going to take me a little while to not be frustrated doing the other thing that is that is just frustrating sometimes and that is challenging is just making sure I do it I do exercises every day and make sure I go ahead and actually do those shoulder rolls and those reaches. And you know those heel lifts and all of those things, and try and just do that program every day when I uh, when when physical exercise has not actually been a regular part of my life up until this point. I want to do things that are more interesting, or I get distracted by having to uh, correct something somewhere on the internet, and there's all of these other things that come into play, but. Ultimately, it's about doing that stuff on a regular basis and forcing myself to do that.
0: Right, exercise, or as I like to call it, movement. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's hard. Well, I mean, seriously, I we've talked. Well, you and I have not talked about this, but I've talked about this with other people. And exercise is a bad word. And the reason why, at least for stroke survivors, that it's a bad word is. If they were big into exercising or hiking or, you know, whatever it was, they are saying they can't do that now or yet. Mm -hmm. And so to them, it's a huge problem when you say exercise. But if you say movement or if you say go to the mall and walk, you know, it's a whole different world.
1: Sure, (laughs) sure
0: the mall and walk and i'll go to the mall and walk (laughs) um you know it could be it could be half a mile i might make it a mile and sometimes i might make it a mile and a half but you know i'll go do that even if it's more strolling than walking but if you tell me that every day i have to do 10 miles on the treadmill i'm less likely to do that but movement i can do movement whether it's the TV with a can of uh, green beans, you know, <laughs> bringing them up and down, whatever.
1: Well, I think the point was that uh, was that that whole question about exercise in and of itself being the bad word. You know, oh, that's yes. that's the problem. I don't like it. I don't like to see it as an end in and of itself. If I'm going to go ahead and uh, walk to Starbucks, I'm I'm happy to go out and go walking to someplace else for a purpose, whether that's going to be going to get coffee or whether that's going to be going to catch the, uh, I, I don't know, the latest nose pass or whatever in Pokemon go or any of these other games that actually give me a reason to actually go out and walk around and do that stuff. The other thing you mentioned there, you used my favorite word there in that discussion. And that's the word yet, because I think it is really important to think about the things that, I can't do yet. You know, I can't Mm -hmm. get my hand yet. I can't walk quickly yet. And that, I think, is so important for the mindset.
0: Well, I learned that from a one-handed dentist. Oh. He came to my stroke support group. He had not had a stroke, but he had had brain surgery, and everything affected him just like a stroke. So he came and talked to us. He talked about number one, that he couldn't do anything. So his wife was doing everything for him. And then one day she just up and said, I'm going out with my friends. And he's like, well, how do I get dressed? She said, figure it out. Well, what about breakfast? You'll figure that out too. Mm -hmm. And it now his shirt wasn't buttoned correctly. His shoes were not tied, but he got dressed. And from that moment forward, he kept doing things he taught himself how to become a dentist but his greatest gift to us was he told us take the word can't out of your vocabulary because you can you will it may not be today it may not be tomorrow it may not be next week but you keep doing you keep going and it can happen he said I became a one-handed dentist he golfed, he flew planes, he, you know, did his dentistry, you know, everything. And he didn't let that stop him, but he said he had to take the word can't out of his vocabulary.
1: That that's awesome. And and he and he's probably now in a situation where, unlike most dentists, he only has five fingers at risk for being bitten.
0: Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> we're not making fun of him, guys, but, you know, <laughs> I'm sure that dentists get their fingers bitten every once in a while.
1: Exactly. Um, well, you know, that's the thing. If you don't laugh, you cry at a lot of this stuff. And having a sense oh, of yeah. humor and recognizing a lot of what happens to us and a lot of what we deal with, it, yeah, it sucks, but it's absurd and funny from some respects, especially early on when... <laughs> I would yawn and my left arm would just sort of start flying up at random and then my fingers would just spread out. It's the only time I had any finger extension and just go full on jazz hands whenever I I yawned, (laughs) you know,
0: it's, it's,
1: you gotta be entertained.
0: Yes. Oh, and I am easily entertained. (laughs) Trust me. (laughs) So, Our advice today is take the word can't out of your vocabulary unless you're saying, I can't do this right now, but that is my next thing, or I can't do it yet, or whatever. It's so true. But one, I I realized also while we were talking, the reason why I had started the movement thing is I need to be entertained also (laughs) when I'm moving. So, you know, I took up things like archery and shooting guns. Stuff that would work my right arm because that was my arm that didn't work well. Therapists didn't approve too much, especially with the gun, sure. um, but I never shot anybody, and I'm getting much better. I hit the target.
1: That's you awesome. Know.
0: So, you know, I do look for things that are going to be fun and different, and that's what I always encourage people, other people to do also, is, you know, the movement or You know, quote, unquote, the exercise doesn't have to be your typical exercise. You can find other things to do. But moving forward, so you are now still a corporate trainer.
1: I've been doing some freelance stuff, but I am sort of looking for my next role. So I'm and hoping to get back in there talking to people and helping them out with things. And uh, whether that's getting them excited about a product they're, uh, they're going to be selling or whether that's helping them be more effective in conducting their sales presentations, the, that's the direction I want to go. I've been doing some, writing some training content for some other providers on a freelance basis, but, you know, still looking for the exact form of my next adventure.
0: So you did launch a podcast for stroke survivors and caregivers. Tell us about that or tell us what you do with this.
1: Well, I launched this podcast back in February because uh, I've been a huge podcast fan for, for many years going back to my original iPod days. And I really like this medium a lot. It's, uh, it's it's a very intimate way, intimate connection, because so many people are listening to podcasts with their earbuds plugged directly in. I mean, where else are you talking directly into people's heads that closely? And that's that's really powerful. Also, the tremendous creativity that's out there in the field. And after I had my stroke and I started doing research and looking for more podcasts that I could listen to, there weren't a whole lot out there. I mean, obviously, the Hand in Hand show is a great one. The Enable Me podcast out of Australia is another uh, fantastic one. The Slow Road to Better, coming out of Vienna, Virginia, is also an excellent show, especially with their focus on aphasia. But I looked at it, and I was like, you know what? With you know, 800,000 people a year dealing with stroke in the U.S., there's got to be, why isn't there more of this stuff out there? And especially as stroke is impacting a younger younger folks more and more these days, there's got to be a way that we can tell these stories more. The other thing I found was that a lot of folks in the medical industry, and I've had some absolutely fantastic therapists and doctors, but they don't always know what each other is doing. They get very good. They're very expert at what they do, but it's a very siloed field, so there's not a ton of crosstalk. So I wanted to do something where I could start sort of breaking down those barriers. Let's connect. Uh, Let's give our, our, our other survivors a place to share their stories, to learn more from other survivors, to learn more from professionals and from caregivers and what their experiences are like, and to really be able to start talking across specialties, to be able to connect with one another. Because ultimately, that connection is one of the things that's really so important. Sharing stories and telling stories is really what, what drives us as a community. And it's been, it's been something that's been an aspect of humanity for thousands of years. How do we share these stories? This history, religion, they're all built on storytelling. And podcasting is a modern way for anybody to get out there and share their story.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, what's interesting about that, and and Daniel and I have spoken about this before, is that you can plug in while you're driving or while you're waiting in a doctor's office or, you know, whatever, and – you know, you don't have to pick up a book and or a magazine or whatever. You can listen to it, and that's what's great about it. You know, you mentioned the iPod. Some people, if they're younger, may not even know what those are. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so it's it's a good way to find information and sometimes just to know you're not alone. I mean, I know we have Facebook pages of uh, support groups and. caregivers and and survivors and children and whatever, but I don't feel that they're as personal, that they give that personal touch at all. You know, you do have in-person support groups, but if you can't get to those to have that personal connection, this is like fantastic for everyone or anyone really. How can our audience find you?
1: Strokecast is available in, in the Apple podcast store as well as in wherever you get your major, wherever you get your podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google. You can also just go to strokecast.com and I have their little subscription options are all there on the page. But yeah, strokecast.com or your favorite podcast app is going to be the best way to, to find the show.
0: So my next question is going to be, what do you see as the biggest challenge with today's stroke care? And I think, at least for me, you already hit on that with physicians and and caregivers. They know, but they don't know. And the information is just kind of transferred from one doctor to another or one person to another. Do you see something else as a bigger challenge?
1: I I think that is is definitely a major challenge. The other challenges are about... Uh, information and preconceptions the idea that you know for 20 or 30 years we've known about neuroplasticity and neurogenesis that nerve cells can actually regrow and you are growing new nerve cells you know up until you know you're 80 and beyond 20 30 years ago we believed that uh, the nerve cells you got at birth that's what you got and make the best use of them but we know that's not true. We know that the brain can change now. And a lot of people still don't know that. A lot of people still believe the whole, if you don't recover by six months, you're done. The other misinformation that's out there, obviously, is that, well, young people don't get strokes. <laughs> and uh, well, that's just not true. Um, and I think we still see that. So people who may see the symptoms, may see the fast symptoms, are just not going to think, well, I'm 35 or I'm 45, it can't be a stroke, so I'll just sleep it off, and that is a huge problem, and if you call 911 or an emergency dispatcher and they ask your age, and now they've got this preconception that, no, maybe this isn't going to be something we need to scramble the ambulances for, and so that is something that definitely needs to be addressed, and then related to that is access. So many people uh, in high risk communities don't have immediate access to stroke care don't have knowledge about the symptoms or the uh, or the risks related to high blood pressure and as a, a as a country, obviously we need to do some things to address that whether that's through awareness whether that's through whatever structural changes need to happen to the uh, the medical system whether there's cultural changes that have to make it more comfortable for people to actually go and seek out preventative care uh, throughout um, throughout just their dermal lives, their pre-stroke days to be able to take things like high blood pressure seriously. I mean I had high I, my stroke was likely caused by hypertension. I had high blood pressure for several years probably three or four years and eventually got it treated when I started having a whole bunch of random nosebleeds uh, and registering like 200 over 150 or something like that, just ridiculous stuff, but things like hypertension and it does long-term damage to the circulatory system. So even when I had already had it stabilized for six to nine months, it was on the baby aspirin at that point, the damage had been done and I had the stroke, you know, High blood pressure, it doesn't hurt. You don't physically feel it. So it doesn't necessarily seem like, well, this is that big a deal. I can deal with this in another six months or a year or two years. And that's not true. That damage can cause problems like stroke and can cause all sorts of other problems and the other risk factors that need to be addressed. You know, and there's just that whole lack of awareness that's out there and anything we can do to drive that. I think will make stroke care better for everyone and ultimately lead to the uh, need for less stroke care, which I think is ultimately what we all want to see.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you brought up the young stroke survivors because I am not old.
1: <laughs> sure.
0: I It was the day after my 52nd birthday mm-hmm. when I had stroke and I still to this day Six and a half years later, you still get, oh my gosh, you had a stroke? You had a stroke? And, you know, I work in the medical field as a medical secretary and I know enough to always be dangerous. And I thought I knew about stroke. I have learned more in the last six years about stroke than I have known in my entire life. Uh, It does happen to younger people. I've met some great young people in their 20s that have been having strokes. And we know that they can have, you can have a stroke in utero. You can have stroke later. You can have stroke at 100 or 10 or, you know, a teenager, whatever. It happens. I don't know if we're just making it, putting it more out there that young people are having strokes or if young people are really having more strokes.
1: Sure. Are we just catching more of them? Are we just seeing better survivability? Or is there actually a change that's happening that's driving this?
0: Right. So, I mean, they sent me home from the emergency room with vertigo and not a stroke. Now, outwardly, I had no stroke symptoms, but they still sent me home with vertigo. And within a half an hour of leaving the emergency room, I was back. And this time, I couldn't figure out how to get out of the car, and I couldn't move. There were just a whole bunch of other symptoms. But, you know, I didn't really have a risk of stroke that anybody had known about. So, you know, I had a vertigo. And then they found out the second time after they did an MRI the next day. So, of course, I was already out of the the loop for TPA or anything 24 to 32 hours later. We do need to highlight this more with our medical community and even families and and just letting everybody know, you know, to look for those fast symptoms, see that we can get it more out there because I do believe that we are finding more people that are younger having these strokes.
1: Absolutely. And I think one of the other things in that uh, I am lucky – in dealing with folks these days, post-stroke, in a couple of respects. Well, I am really lucky in a heck of a lot of respects. I, I, I recognize that um, in that my stroke has manifested basically in entirely physical symptoms. And, uh, you know, what I like to say is that, you know, if uh, a company were to hire me and ask me to be on their company softball team today, you know, I really wouldn't be that much less capable there than I was before the stroke because I was never, you know, good with athletics and never really valued a ton of that stuff. But when people see me or when I have conversations with folks, it's obvious that I've got a disability. You know, when I've got the cane, when I've got the arm in my sling to prevent shoulder subluxation, when my arm just doesn't move. For folks who don't have those obvious physical symptoms and then I have to work with other folks who may not understand things like neuro fatigue and some of the struggles with aphasia. It can become even more challenging and having to deal with just the, the, the preconceptions that other folks have about stroke. So awareness, both pre-stroke and post-stroke becomes so much more important for, uh, for, for really helping us all to, to live our lives to the fullest.
0: I'll go back again and say, you know, I do have some physical disability, but a lot of times people won't know it unless I'm tired or stressed. And then, you know, I can walk down a hall and I can hit each side of the wall as I'm, you know, walking because it gets so, I, I call it my wonky walk or my, it, hopefully I won't offend anyone, but I also call it my walk like a sailor on a Friday night walk.
1: <laughs> but
0: you know, Practicing for yeah. a
1: real world pinball.
0: Yeah, exactly. I hadn't thought about the pinball thing. I'm going to have to use that one. But most of the time people won't really know it. So I park in a handicapped spot. You know, I have my little placard. You know, mm-hmm. I I'd get out. People stare at me because sometimes I do walk okay going in. Now, if they were still out there when I was going home, that might be a whole different story. Sure. Um, you know, but sometimes, you know, people will see that part of it. But for me, it's my cognitive thinking. So, you know, I have filters that are gone. So sometimes you don't know what's going to come out of my mouth. Or sometimes I'll say stuff and people will just look at me funny. Fortunately, if they know me, they get it. But, mm-hmm. you know, there's just all sorts of disabilities within us. They're not all seen. I know neurofatigue. That's like, I guess it's my buddy these days. <laughs> What message would you like to bring to stroke survivors and caregivers today?
1: That uh, I would like to like stroke survivors and caregivers to remember that you are not alone, there is an entire community of people out there who get it, who understand what you're going through because they're going through it too. And you may not see them all the time because so many people. End up isolated in their homes, or the caregivers end up isolated from friends and, and family. But you're not alone. Go out there, make those connections. The other thing that I would like you to, like everybody, to remember, is something I, uh, I I had to relearn that I learned in the 90s. Originally, uh, I was uh, living in Montana, and I was bored one weekend, so I took a motorcycle class learned how to ride a, uh, a motorcycle, and got my license in two days. It was the last time I ever rode a motorcycle, so any medical professionals that are out there can keep their hands off my kidneys for now. But um, <laughs> one of the things they taught us in that class was that if you see a pothole or a pedestrian or a box or any other form of debris in the road, don't look at it look at the path around it. Because if you look at it, if you focus on that, your brain will pull you towards that obstacle. And what you need to do is focus on the path around that. When it comes to stroke recovery, when it comes to achieving things in life, the most important thing is to focus on the path to our goals. Because if we focus on the obstacles to our goals, we will hit those obstacles. And we will not hit our goal. If you want to hit your goal, Focus on your goal. Focus on the path to your goal. Focus on the route that is going to get you to your goal and do it.
0: Right. And, and that is great advice. The only thing I'd add to that is, you know, people, instead of looking how far they've come, will look at how far they need to go, you know, to get back. Don't look to the forward part. Look at the back and see where you were, however long it's been. Six years ago, five years ago, four years ago, even two months ago. Look at where you were and where you are now. Don't say, but I still can't walk. Don't look at that. Look where you were. And I like the fact, though, that you said about, I, while well, I use this, a detour, I like that motorcycle strategy. It's, it's kind of the same thing, you know, just keep going, but don't look at that part of
1: it. Right. And that's what neuroplasticity is about. Neuroplasticity is about letting your brain change to do the things that you tell it to do, the things you spend the time focusing on. I mean, the, um, you know, was it a uh, Norman Doidge in his book says a lot about uh, the uh, nerves that Fire together, wire together. The more you do one thing and the more you focus on one thing with your brain, the stronger those connections are going to be. Make sure that those connections are valuable to you. I would like them to, uh, to know that, obviously, I'd love them to subscribe to StrokeCast and check that out. Also, if you're looking for a support group and there is a ton of value, if you can get out into the community but just don't know about any opportunities, The American Heart Association has a stroke group finder on their website. So you can just type in your zip code and it will pull up any of the local stroke groups that are in your area. If you're feeling isolated or alone, go ahead and find a way to connect with others. And that can be a great way.
0: Absolutely. There's also, I was just contacted by a gentleman who is putting together a list of stroke groups. Um, he has found that there are so many that aren't even on those lists. So I'm hoping to have some information about that in the next six months to a year as he's compiling these because he was telling me that he just found that there's hundreds out there that aren't on that list. And he was trying to get everybody together so that there was a more complete list of uh, of groups because they they do have their place and their help, so that's just my little plug. So if anybody's in the St. Louis area, hello. Anyway, <laughs>
1: um, <laughs> and anyone in the Seattle area, be sure to check out uh, the Seattle Young Adult Stroke Survivors. You can go to strokecast.com dot com slash y a s s to find uh, our website.
0: Bill. It's been a- Pleasure. We've both plugged our stroke support groups and, and other stuff, but I really appreciate you being here today. Your story, I'm hoping, will inspire other people to keep going and, and, and not give up and to use our little ways of, of looking at it in positivity to, to move forward. This is an announcement of Stroke Focus. Stroke Focus has opened up its blog section to all its members. It is a professional platform, completely free and very easy to use. It provides instant visibility to know how many views your blog is receiving. At the same time, we are helping members put stories on our podcast. You can get a professional quality radio broadcast to share on Facebook, Twitter, or post on your site. For all our members with aphasia, our audio editors... Will help make your interviews smooth. Do not need any professional equipment. No interview will be published before you review and approve it. There is no charge. Join us at (laughs) https://www.strokefocus.net or write to us at contact at strokefocus.net Join the growing list of people sharing stories. What you share will make a difference.